and welcome to the June 2008 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today with Matt Bowling. Hi, Sean. Hello, Matt. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. I know we've got... I a cup of coffee, so, you know, be easy on me. Okay. Well, you just uh, keep drinking and the caffeine will hit uh, hit in just a second here. Cool. Uh, we are joined at the table, or as the as the case may be, at the Skype conference uh, today by Stefan Lindblad. Uh, Stefan is an old friend of Matt and I's. We all went to Westminster Seminary together, and uh, Stefan is representing today the the Baptist uh, at the table. Is that okay with you? Can you be the Baptist at the table? That's fine. I, I would prefer to be called a Reformed Baptist, but okay. uh, I'll, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> take what you can get. Well, very good. It's good no. to have you with us, Stefan. And what we want to do today is continue a little bit of the conversation uh, that we began two months ago with our, uh, that would have been our April podcast, uh, when we began talking about this whole issue of Baptists and Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians, uh, getting together and uh can we worship at each other's churches? Certainly we can do that, uh, but this this whole baptism thing and uh, the requirements of church membership seem to be limiting that a little bit, and so we wanted to bring uh, Stefan to the table here with us today and talk a little bit more about that, uh, because obviously the three of us are all friends, and one of the things that keeps us friends is the fact that we've got the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that being the case, uh, how do we work with this? How do we deal with uh, issues like baptism and church membership uh, when um, when the three of us do actually disagree? Uh, now, before we get there, though, I want to take a moment to introduce Stefan to you. Um, Stefan is a, like we said, a graduate of Westminster Seminary in uh, California. And you are pastoring, where are you pastoring now? You are at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Kirkland, Washington, is that correct? Yes, okay. yes, and I've, I've, I've been there now for six years. For six years, and you were pastoring, learned this last week, you're pastoring with your dad. Yes, uh, my dad has been the pastor of the church since its founding back in, well, it started meeting together in 1992, and the church constituted in 1993, so... Um, we're upon our, uh, or we're getting close to actually our 15th anniversary as a church. That's wonderful. Very cool. And that's been, you were saying that that was, that's been a great experience. You haven't had, uh, difficulty being, working there side by side with your dad. No, it has, it has, uh, some great benefits in the sense that, uh, especially since my dad and I, uh, see eye to eye uh, on so many things, now, is your is your dad uh, your spiritual has, father? Yes, uh, I was converted uh, under his ministry. Um, came to Christ. Um, you know, I'm I don't have a you know one, a, a definite point in time. I don't have some radical conversion experience, uh, especially since I grew up in a Christian home. Um, but sometime in my later high school years, I believe that the Lord worked in my life and I came to faith in Christ and professed Christ and, uh, I was baptized when I was, uh, uh about 18 years old. And it, was that a little challenging in a Reformed Baptist home that it was that long until you were baptized? Was there sort of an yeah. expectation of profession earlier than that? Uh, not, 
on my dad's part. Okay. Um, That's cool. Yeah. There, well, there can be in some circles, in some Baptist circles, even beyond Reformed Baptists. But, you know, the Lord works when and where he will, and, and if we truly believe in in the sovereignty of God, in bringing even our children to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then I think some of that pressure should be relieved. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. If, not all, if not all of it. Right, right. Um, now, so. we, we were talking beforehand, uh, Stefan, you've also got a, a connection to somebody else that our listeners uh, would know of, and that, was, that is Walt Chantry. And yes. you, were, you were mentioning that you were the, his last intern. Yes, at uh, Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, the summer of 2001. Uh, and then he retired from the full-time gospel ministry there at that church um, in the spring of 2002. So I did have the privilege of uh, uh, shutting down his... <laughs> uh, experience, but it was it was a, a blessing to work uh, with Walt for that summer, and uh, I have remained uh, very close with him and consider him one of my closest friends, not only in terms of a gospel minister, but just a, a good Christian friend. That's mm. great. That's wonderful. Yeah, I've I've mm-hmm. uh, seen him a number of times at the Banner of Truth conferences. Mm. And uh, and he is he does seem to be a very warm, personable fellow, and I've, I've always appreciated his writing. Uh, now I notice here in your bio you've um, you've published in the Banner of Truth magazine. I, I assume that was uh, in conjunction with working with Walt, or or yes. Is that- um, when I was there in the summer of two thousand and one, we had a number of occasions to. I actually lived with him and his wife, and so we would sit around the dinner table and and. Uh, discuss whatever came to his mind or my mind, uh, things we had been reading that day or whatnot. And uh, what we began to talk about is was the doctrine of justification. Um, and that was about the time that, that a lot of the, the Federal Vision and um, New Perspective on Paul was really taking hold yes. in evangelical and Reformed circles. And so that became a top topic of conversation frequently, and our talking led to him suggesting that at some point I should write on the issue, and when he retired from the ministry, he um, became the editor of the Banner of Truth magazine, and he asked me to write, and I wrote an article on the doctrine of justification, and I've I've, uh, written some other articles for him as well. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, it's great to have you with us, Stefan. And uh, we had a little, a little bit of technical difficulty getting you on here uh, for our first recording, but we've, we, it looks like we're, uh, we've got you on here. We can all hear you, and um, <laughs> hopefully you can hear us. Yes, I can hear you. Now, now one other thing before we, before we get on to discussing the whole topic of uh, Baptists and Presbyterians together, uh, I should mention that you are uh, married You've been married for the past 10 years. You have two daughters, uh, for which I am uh, I'm thankful to have somebody else on here who has daughters. Because uh, Matt, as you know, has only boys. Uh, I have four girls. And uh, so thank you for being somebody who can relate to the host of this podcast. 
Well, and we ha- and we have one more child on the way. My wife is due in October, and uh, we don't know the sex of the baby yet. But if I were a betting man, I'd put money on a girl. Money on a girl. <laughs> That's right. You're uh, the odds are odds are against boy. It goes up. You know, it goes up. The more you have, uh, it just keeps going up. So one of, one of these days, maybe I'll have a boy. Yep. <laughs> but I love my girls so. Hey, um, I guess the the question we we need to start with is simply this: you know, are we all Christians sitting here talking to one another? I, mean, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would concur. Is there uh, being there being no question that we are all believers? We've all you know expressed faith in Christ. Uh, we've all professed our faith in Christ. Uh, Matt knows that one of the um, uh, things that I like to bring up in terms of the re- uh, my relationship to a Baptist as a Presbyterian minister uh, is that we both believe that there needs to be the outward sign and the outward profession, as well as the inward change of heart. Uh, yes, I would just say that it doesn't; they don't necessarily have to be at the same time. Um, and maybe you wouldn't put it in in that many words, Stefan. Uh, but if we're all Christians, what, what's the issue here? What do you what do you think? What do you guys think is the the issue that is creating the division? Where you know, at a Bethlehem Baptist Church, Piper's Church, where they cannot admit uh, Reformed Presbyterian men, women, and children uh, who have professed their faith outwardly, uh, but have simply viewed their infant baptism as a valid baptism. What do, we, what do we do with this? Oh, pardon me. Didn't turn my phone off here. So just go ahead and uh, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, I, I do think that the the division arises in part because of conscientious convictions regarding baptism and church membership. Right. I don't. I don't think anyone here is. At least no one I know that would hold to a closed membership view, which is what in a Baptist context would exclude a a hearing who's been baptized as an infant from coming into full membership. Um, I don't think that they hold that position because they're curmudgeon people. They're not... They're not just holding that position because uh, they want to have an exclusively Baptist church and they're irrational in holding that position. I think it's, it's, it's born of a conscientious conviction regarding what the scriptures teach concerning baptism and church membership. At least that's been, been my experience in talking to those uh, who hold to that position. Yeah, I guess that the, a little bit of the challenge, and maybe you can help me understand this, is I've got people in my church who they've been, although um, my personal position on, on baptizing people is that I'll, um, I will immerse someone, if even though it's not our typical practice, I will immerse someone if um, if they're able to sufficiently convince me that it's just a passionate personal preference. Hmm. That there's not a theological difference, because if they think there's a theological difference, then 
and that's because we're Presbyterians, and I recognize right. that. I mean, but so I guess the challenge a little bit, maybe for Sean and I, and maybe you can help us understand this is, I'm willing to receive, you know, I'm willing to receive the baptism of um, an immersed Baptist who wants to be in our church. So it's what's difficult is that it. It doesn't seem reciprocal, and I'm saying "seem" because I'm not I'm not positive that we're talking about the same issue. So, so I'm, I'm willing to receive a baptism that that is would not be regular for us. So right? Matt, you're saying that a, a Baptist who is a member who uh, or somebody who is who comes to faith under your ministry but has Baptist convictions, uh, you would go ahead and immerse them. You wouldn't consider that a theological difference? Well, no, no, no. I, I would say, no, I probably would not immerse someone if they think that immersion is the only suitable baptism. That it's the only valid mode? Exactly. Okay. So, and we, we answer this when we come through Presbytery. This is frequently a question because it's something that frequently happens. I will immerse someone if they think that uh, a sprinkled adult baptism. I don't ask. The, I don't ask them to believe that an infant that my children are baptized. I don't ask them that. But if they think an adult who is sprinkled or poured on is not baptized, then they think most of the people in our church are actually dishonoring the Lord. And that you see what I'm saying. That's where it gets a little bit tricky. Is that I'll immerse someone if it's a passionate personal preference. But if it's their if it's their theological preference, um, that I, I can't do that because in their mind all the rest of us are sinning, um, and so it's hard to, to, to divide the line. I, I sense this tension in myself, so I don't. Well, no, I, but it, but it sounds like to me that your conclusion on that issue is derived from your Presbyterian or Pado Baptist principles, right? So it's con- it's at least consistent with your understanding of baptism and particularly the mode of baptism. And I would argue in similar terms, but from obviously Baptist principles, where I personally would argue that um, the mode, while not indifferent, the mode... A baptism can be valid even if the mode is irregular. Oh, interesting. So, if, for example, um, let me just give an example but, for our listeners. Hold on. I, 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 I should say this, that, okay, that not, not all Reformed Baptists holding to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith would, would take that position. Okay. Now, my position, I don't think, is the minority position, but there is a diversity of, of opinion on this issue, even amongst Reformed Baptists. Okay, so let me just give an example. Um, we have a gentleman in our congregation uh, who probably is not yet baptized, who for four or five years has walked away from uh, – the Lord's really done a great work in him, but he's walked away from a lifestyle of – being a druggie and dealing drugs, and that's all that he's ever known. He's forty, mm. and the Lord's the the Lord has worked it in the last four years, and he's there's a lot of darkness in his past, 
but there's a lot of light on the path right now, and it's just exciting. He's he's great to be around. Mm. Now, if he wasn't baptized, for I'm just give you a for example, so I can put sure. some concrete to this. If he wasn't baptized, and he uh, sensed that he ought to be baptized as part of his discipleship here, um, and he was to move to Kirkland. Mm-hmm. And the closest church for him to go to, let's assume Jason's not there, yada, yada, yada. The church he wants to affiliate with is Trinity Reformed Baptist. That's your church, right? Right. Right, okay. And would you, so in your mind, if he had been um, poured on here, just for example, mm-hmm. um, would you receive him as a full member because his baptism was on profession? Well, we would, in we would... Ask each individual on a case by case basis. Okay. So, it, it, but there at least would, would be an openness to that. Yes. That's cool. And and we would, given our principles, what is most significant is was when he was baptized. Did he believe that this was a sign and seal unto him of Christ? And Christ's benefits. Hmm. So, did he understand that in going under the waters of baptism or having the waters of baptism poured over him or, or sprinkled upon him, did he understand in that setting and did he confess in that setting that essentially this is the sign of my being engrafted into Christ? And that's the that's the priority. Now, again, in saying that, I would not want anyone to conclude that mode is somehow indifferent, and that we can be baptized according to whatever mode question. It doesn't really matter. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a recognition on our part, at least our church and our our church constitution would argue this as well. That there's a recognition on our part that. Not everyone is baptized in what we would consider ideal circumstances. Okay. You know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who, when they were baptized, uh, it was by effusion, by pouring. Hmm. And so, and he admitted to me to some degree that if all things had been ideal, not only would he have been baptized by immersion, but he would have been baptized in a Reformed Baptist church and not in the, the church that he was baptized in, recognizing there were difficulties in that church. And it wasn't a PCA church or an OPC church or anything like that. It was uh, outside the context of, of even Reformed Christianity. So, it, you know, again, I feel, in, according to my principles – the individual would be baptized upon a profession of faith and by means of immersion. Right. But that doesn't always happen. And so how do we work with the individual without unnecessarily baptizing someone again? Gotcha. That's, it's good to hear that, um, that you're thinking along those lines um, because – that is that that is very close to what the Presbyterian is is thinking. It's a, it's a principle I think we both share, is that we don't want to rebaptize. We, we don't ever. None of us want to ever rebaptize. Right. We want 
there to be a valid baptism. Right. And so from, obviously from a, from a Presbyterian perspective, uh, it's just a little bit more broader in what a valid baptism would be, whereas a Baptist perspective, a valid baptism is going to be a little narrower. But it, it also sounds like that there is some, uh, flexibility there by saying that there are irregular circumstances. Um, Presbyterians come into this issue, and I know this is a this is a very debated issue. Uh, there's even a position paper in the PCA on this, and that's Roman Catholic baptism. Uh, yeah. Now, I imagine in in the Reformed Baptist Church, Roman ba- Roman Catholic baptism is just out. Yes, automatically. <laughs> um, in the, in the Presbyterian Church, it, I, I don't I don't know the statistics on it, uh, but there is a fair amount of division. Uh, there are some of us who would like to, who, who think it's completely out. It's an apostate church. There are, there are others of us who, who are saying, well, you know what? Uh, there are definitely problems with the church, but the baptism itself is valid. So I, personally, I'm, I, I'm on the fence leaning more towards, uh, saying that it's an invalid, uh, baptism. And therefore, somebody in the Roman Catholic Church should be rebaptized once they enter into the Protestant Church. Actually, um, baptized for the first time, right? Yes, yeah, yes, and that's and it, that is more interesting of an issue um, in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe it wasn't in Central Pennsylvania where you were. I guess Carlisle is just barely Central Pennsylvania, city Eastern. But um, I don't know how Catholic the area is in Carlisle, but where we were, that was very common. Hmm. Uh, in fact, it was the most common background of people. Where here it would be unchurched, more than likely the most common background of people. There it was that they they grew up in in the Roman Catholic Church, okay. If you even would call it a church, so. So why? Uh, I mean, this this is good. I mean, we we knew that um, we were. Uh, I mean, we're close on so many things. You know, if we were to sit here and talk about justification, sanctification, glorification, if we were to talk about uh, the atonement, any of these things, we would all be just right on together. Um, It it does seem odd that our difference is over, you know, something that the the thief on the cross didn't get. You know, something that Paul says, you know, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you when he writes to the the Corinthians. Um, Yeah. Why, uh, we, you know, let me, let me do this. Let me read a quote from Grudem, uh, because a lot of this got started when Wayne Grudem, uh, did a revision of his systematic theology. Did you know about this, Stefan? Yes. I, I didn't actually know about it until, um, I was asked to join you guys and, and went and read up on, all of them and listen to the podcast and I'm, I'm glad I know about it. Um, I, I think it represents uh, you. Well, read the quotation and then I'll. Uh, okay. Uh, this is, this is what he says. Um, he says, uh, it leads with the heading, do churches need to be divided over baptism? And then he says, in spite of many years of division over this question among Protestants, Is there a way in which Christians who differ on baptism can demonstrate greater unity of fellowship? And is there a way that progress can be made in bringing the church closer to unity on this question? 
I'm sure that's, a, that's something we would all like answered. Much progress in this regard has already been made, he writes. Christians who differ over baptism already demonstrate their unity in Christ through individual fellowship, Bible studies and prayer groups in their communities, occasional joint worship services, cooperation in city and regional evangelistic campaigns, joint support of many mission agencies and parachurch groups, joint sponsorship of youth activities, pastors' fellowship groups, and so forth. And then here's the, I think this is the key sentence. He says, although baptism remains a difference, that difference does not generally lead to harmful divisions. In fact, most Christians seem to realize that baptism is not a major doctrine of the faith. Now, I read that last sentence. <laughs> I agreed with everything coming up to that. And then I got to that last sentence where he says, in fact, most Christians seem to realize that baptism is not a major doctrine of the faith. And I, 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 I don't know, does that take you guys back at all? Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's... I yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Stephen. As we would all agree, and I think our, our confessions are such that they're so close that baptism being the sign and seal of the covenant of grace we agree that's not ins- that's not insignificant <laughs> that, that's important yeah and it has to be taken seriously and the kind of conversation that we're having today and the kind of dialogue that's gone back and forth between piper and grudem those things are important to think about as well because they deal with a sense of of catholicity they deal with how do we recognize uh, the universal church in its local manifestations, particularly in a fallen world. But you can't use that to say that somehow baptism now is less than or is less important than those other doctrines. I, I That just troubles me. Yeah, because we are talking about an an ordinary means of grace. We're talking about something that God has designated as the, the like you said, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is not a small thing. Um, now, in terms of salvificness, I think we would all agree you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, there is not uh, the thief on the cross. Uh, went directly to paradise apart from baptism. Uh, but that but is the... True. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say it's also true that the baptized, or excuse me, the saved are ordinarily baptized. Yeah, that, that's right. what I was going to say, is that the, <laughs> the thief on the cross is the exception that proves the rule. Right. Uh, I, I think uh, I'll often ask people what would have happened if, if the thief came down from the cross, what's the first thing he would have done? And, uh, you know, my guess is he would have shown up in church, you know, whatever the, whatever the, in the synagogue, he would have gone in the synagogue yes. or he would have gone to, um, uh, to the, a gathering of believers. Uh, he would have gathered in the upper room or wherever it was that, uh, that he was at the time. He would have taken of the Lord's Supper. 
uh, and he would have received baptism. Stefan, can I ask you a question that's kind of off the script here, but just because it, it just came into my mind? Sure. Uh, in a Presbyterian context, and I probably could just read London Baptist Confession, but it's I can't reach it from where I'm sitting. Um, in a reform in a reform Baptist context, is the appropriate person to perform a baptism the minister, or is it broader than that? And yes, it's, it's broader than that. Uh, it is. It is not broader than that. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I misunderstood. No, no. Um, I was saying yes to that. It's it's the minister. Okay. Um, our confession actually doesn't um, make that explicit, but that would be my argument, and I know that's the argument of of the majority of Reformed Baptists. Although. Uh, Somewhere in the back of my mind, there's something telling me that on one occasion I've heard an individual make a case that it that it could be um, otherwise, but not someone outside of the local church, not someone apart from the um, outside of the authority of the church. So it could be an elder in the church, for example, and not a pastor, although we're, we're by and large we're two office people, deacon and elder. So an elder is a pastor and has the same uh, authority in the local church. Okay, but I but I don't know. No one specifically comes to mind as having argued that it's someone other than the minister who can baptize. Okay, long answer should have been shorter. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine because I, I was just. Recently read something where is <clears throat> a Baptist context, and um, the way that they had chosen to do it was the people who were involved in the person's conversion assisted in the baptism of those people, no. which was interesting. Um, but anyhow, it, well, now it, that Matt, that's a Reformed Baptist versus, I guess, I think regular Baptist is a technical term, isn't it? Um, but but a, a non-reformed Baptist and a reformed Baptist would disagree on that. I think. I, uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I would argue, and our church would say that only those who are duly appointed to the office of elder or pastor are authorized by Christ to baptize in the name of the Triune God. Hmm. So you two are both in Seattle, actually. Stefan, you're not in Seattle this morning. Um, no. You're, you're in Escondido, California. Um, if, uh, you two, but you two are about 20 minutes away from each other. Suppose, without traffic. Without traffic. <laughs> suppose that uh, one or the other of you was on vacation. Well, let's suppose, Stefan, you were on vacation. And uh, Matt was available to preach. And you asked Matt to come preach in your pulpit. Um, not that it personally belongs to you, uh, but if he were to come and he were to preach in your pulpit, uh, and let's say you had, well, first of all, would you you would do that, right? There would be no yes. difficulty. Yes. Okay. Now let's say he, with the understanding, of course, that when you're in somebody else's pulpit, you don't pick on their own doctrine. Oh yes. Oh yeah. You're not going to go and preach on. 
why immersion is just simply not there in the scripture. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he was joking. I know, I know the, um, so now, okay, now here's, here's my, my little twist on this is let's say you were having the Lord's supper that day. Could Matt preside? Could Matt partake? I would not have Matt preside, but he uh, could Matt partake. probably would not preside. Yeah, Matt, I, I would be uncomfortable going into another church and presiding over the Lord's table. Okay, well, simply because he's not a part of that denomination. Well, he's not an elder in that church. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. how about partaking? He's not he a member. Partake. He could partake in our church. Okay. Um, there are there are three positions that have been historically held by Baptists and by confessional Baptists on the issue of whether or not a uh, a press or a, a non member of your specific local church or my specific local church can come in and partake of of the supper. There's there's a closed view which says no, only members of that particular local church can come, and that's somewhat of a minority position. There's the open view, which is much more broader. Anyone who professes faith, they don't necessarily have to be a member. And there's what we might call um, close communion, yeah. in that a someone who is a member in good standing of another uh, gospel-preaching church can come to the table in my church. So Matt would would fit the bill. He has been baptized according to the principles of the local church in which he's in. He is professed faith in Jesus Christ. He has is a member in good standing of that fellowship, again, meaning he's not under the corrective discipline of the church. And if he meets those requirements, then he can come to the table in our in our church. What what I mean if you could give me a sort of a broad sort of pie chart, how would you say that the Reformed Baptist community is divided among those three views? I would guess percentage. that yeah, I would guess that eighty percent of our churches, at least eighty percent, would hold to the same view that I do. That close communion view. Um, I do know of at least one church, and I think that there are a couple more who would not permit a Presbyterian to come to the table in their church. It's a distinct minority. Yes. Okay. Uh, and I don't know of anyone that holds to an open view. Um, but th- there could be. I-, I just don't know of them. And within uh, – our church belongs to a national association, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America. And within that association, the predominant view is that of close community. 
And so, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead and no, finish no. your thought. I have another question for you. No, go go ahead with your question. Well, I wanted to I want to take this maybe then to the next step. And Stefan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you you. Uh, it's this is sort of a setup <laughs> in that we're we're not uh, you know you're you're ge- being picked on by two Presbyterians here, but we really are uh, very very helpful to see into your brain and to uh, help us to understand and, and I'm encouraged very encouraged uh, to hear uh, so much of what you're telling us. Um, let's let's take this take our hypothetical situation. Uh, a little bit further, let's say Matt uh, left his church, decided that instead of being a pastor, he wanted to be a plumber, uh, because <laughs> Matt has amazing plumbing skills. And um, Among a variety of other skills. Among <laughs> a variety of other skills. And uh, so, so let's say Matt decided to be a plumber, and in, in, in doing that, he moved to your area. It was right by your church. There wasn't another uh, Presbyterian church. Uh, close by, was five minutes, he was wa- walking distance from your church, Stefan. And so he wanted to become a member of your church. Walk, walk us through that process of, you know, Matt showing up in your church saying, hey, here I am, can I, can I be a member? What's some of the conversation that, that would go on between the two of you? Okay. Before I answer the the specific question in sort of an anecdotal or experiential way, um, it's probably helpful to have something of a historical background to how Baptist churches have answered that question and particularly how Baptist churches of faith would answer that question. I think it's helpful to to understand that. There, There are are basically two views or two answers to the question. There's a view of open membership and then there's closed membership. And those, I think those terms are self-explanatory. Open meaning uh, anyone who professes faith in Christ can be a member of the church. Whether or not they've been baptized. Well, no, they could not be unbaptized or they had to have gotten wet at some point along the way. <laughs> okay. So, in other words, uh, in that con- in an open view, a Presbyterian could be a full member of the church or okay. a Pado-Baptist, someone someone who had been baptized as an infant. This, this would have been um, like John Bunyan's position. Yes, correct. And then there's closed membership, which says that no, they have to be baptized upon. Uh, uh, and by and large, closed membership would also argue they have to be baptized by immersion. Stefan, your, your signal dropped there. Can you repeat that last sentence? Yes, that, that closed membership argues that they would have to be baptized upon profession of faith in order to join the local church. Okay. And more than likely, that in most cases, that would mean also that they would have to be baptized by immersion. Okay. And... And yet, what's interesting is that our confession of faith does not tie church membership to baptism. Um, and that's because both of those views, open and closed views of membership, were present uh, at the 
assembly when the the confession was uh, adopted in 1689. Persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, um, etc., etc. They may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. And there's no recognition there, or at least there's no explicit statement there, that they must be baptized according to baptistic principles in order to join the church. And there's an appendix to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith which says that the confession recognizes, or the confession uses that language particularly because there was disagreement amongst Baptists even in the 17th century as to how this question should be answered. And so they left it to the individual conscience of the church. Um, which, is, which is an interesting, actually, uh, application of the ecclesiology, which is kind of cool. I mean, and, they, did, and, they didn't limit. <clears throat> right. They let their ecclesiology reign instead of a confession, which is interesting. That's kind of cool. Right, and they let their their the authority or the autonomy of the local church, even where there's a uh, a connectionalism, they left the autonomy of the local church um, unaffected by that connectionalism on on a point like this, hmm. and. Uh, what's interesting, again, these these two views of open and closed membership are still present among confessional Reformed Baptist churches today. And, for example, uh, there's a church in central Pennsylvania that a long time ago had Voss's, Gerhardus Voss's son as a member. And he was baptized as an infant upon profession of faith, and he was brought into the membership of the church. There are other churches in our association who would not have accepted his baptism. Hmm. Um, now, I, I like to think of my own position, and this gets back to Sean's answering Sean's question. Um, I like to think of my own position as as uh, somewhat nuanced. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some would probably say it's a compromise, but I don't like to think of it that way. And But Matt comes to my church. The first question I'm asking, is there a good paedo-baptist church in town for him? Is there something locally where he can go and his Presbyterian and paedo-baptist principles – are no hindrance to him or to us at all. And hindrance is probably too strong of a word, but I think you, you get where I'm going. If that's not the case, then I've, then I've really got to wrestle with the fact that, that I have a, an individual on my hands who does profess faith in Christ, does have a life that adorns the gospel, and can truly be called a visible saint – what do I do? Well, the next question I would ask is, if you were to come into the life of this church in some capacity, 
could you submit to yourself or submit yourself to the proper uh, ecclesiastical authority? Would you um, would you submit to the teaching of the church, the worship of the church, the life of this church, or are you going to come in and make baptism, for example, an issue? Okay. Right. Then will I'm going to ask. Will I pursue yes. the peace of your church? And correct. Yeah. And in related to that, are you willing to reconsider the the issue? Are you willing to read some things that I give you? Are you willing to discuss the issue? Um, is there a spirit of being teachable? Now, I should say that teachable does not mean you have to come to my position or else you're out the door. But are you at least willing to consider the issue and the the biblical and theological arguments um, for professors or for credo baptism. Now, if you get to the place where yes, you're willing to consider it, you've you do consider it, but you still remain unconvinced, then at least in our context, we would create a um, a special category of of membership, not that we would create something contrary to the scriptures, but we would make a way for this individual who was baptized as an infant. I I should say, well, I'll get there in a second, but we would make a way for this individual who was baptized as an infant but truly professes Christ and has a life, again, that adorns the gospel, we would find a way to bring them into the life of the church and under the care of the church and the elders so that they would be able to partake of the privileges of membership and perform the duties of membership. So privileges, obviously the Lord's Supper, duties of membership, tithing, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But we would limit them to some degree as well. We would not give that individual voting rights in the life of the congregation, and they could not hold office in the congregation. So we're talking about something, I think the PCA has a category like that called associate membership. Yeah, that's a a term that I know others are willing to use. (sighs) In my own conscience, I've wrestled with being able to use that language. Okay. (laughs) Um, So certainly we're not, Matt could not be um, in leadership in the church. No. Definitely not. So there there wouldn't be... Hopefully, you know, if you had a guy who was a former pastor, that he would be monitored, obviously, but teach a men's group, something like that, I suspect. Okay. And... We could, I could even see a case where such an individual, I mean, if I had Gerhardus Voss's son in my church and he was a capable preacher, I would not have a problem, again, under the right circumstances and with all the proper qualifications of having that man preach. Mm-hmm. 
but or or, or teach in in a Sunday school or something like that. So. But so it's much more about the spirit of the individual, it sounds like, than it is necessarily about where they individually, in terms of their convictions, are. If they're a teachable kind of person and they're willing to live within the boundaries of the church, then you'd give them everything except basically voting or officer, which I think is is uh, and and I suitable. think our our confession is actually helpful on this point. That um, actually Jim Renan. Who is at the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, which is here in Escondido and works in conjunction with Westminster Seminary? He pointed this this particular uh, part of the confession out to me in relation to this question that we're asking, uh, and it's Chapter One and Paragraph Six. And our confession reads exactly the same on this point uh, as the Westminster Confession that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. So even there are some circumstances regarding the government of the church and this whole question of whether or not a... uh, convinced paedo-baptist baptized as an infant can be brought in, into the church he would argue that this question can be answered according to the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word so the word of God upholds church membership as a duty incumbent upon all of Christ's people. So how does how then do you take that that duty and that privilege really of being united to the visible body of Jesus Christ and in a circumstance that's less than ideal how do you do that? And that seems to me the question that's really the question we're answering here. And so while we would not allow a, again, a Presbyterian to vote in the life of the church, we would still find a way for them to partake of the, again, the privileges and to and fulfill some of the duties of membership that are incumbent upon them as a Christian. Now, that leads me to to another question. Um, I know in the PCA, we do not ask, in order to be a member, the requirement for being a member in the PCA is, we would say, is the same as the requirement in Scripture. Uh, simply that you, that you be a believer and receive baptism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, so we don't ask everyone in the congregation, everyone, all the members of the church, don't have to hold to our confession of faith. That is, uh, but the leadership does. The elders must hold to the Westminster Confession. The congregation doesn't have to hold to the confession. So, for example, you might have somebody, uh, I might have somebody in my congregation, I'm sure I do have somebody in my congregation, uh, that doesn't hold to the five points of Calvinism, for example. 
Now, what I'm hearing here is that on this issue of baptism, uh, you you would not allow somebody to be a voting member if they did not hold to uh, credo baptism. Would you? Yet, you, would you allow somebody to be a member? I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. I'm just trying to work this through, work the logic through. Would you allow somebody to be a member that did not hold to the five points of Calvinism? Well, let me let me make a clarification. Okay. We would, as a church, we would bring someone who is a convinced paedobaptist. We would allow them membership in the church if they had been into included voting, we would um, bring them into the membership of the church if they had been baptized upon a profession of faith. So really the, the, the only individual who does not get to hold office and vote is the individual who was baptized as an infant. Okay, so the same... Or, or, or not upon a profession of faith. Does that, does that no, distinction make sense? I do see sense? your nuance here, and it's helpful, because you're, you're very barely limiting. So you're giving a fair amount of latitude for the convinced paedo-baptist and the infant baptized without right. completely giving away the farm. And I think that is a very nuanced position, and I think very helpful, personally. And... and when I say vote, the only thing that my church really votes on it would be the calling of a pastor. Oh, we so it's, a, it's an elder-led church. Yeah. Yeah. So we wouldn't and, – and we when we – for example, when someone comes into the life of the church and they, they want to be a member of the church, we, we speak of it as affirming their addition to the church because God adds to the church and we simply re- – must recognize mm. those whom we believe he's added. Yes. So, so when someone is added to the church and they become a member of the church, we have an affirmation of that. So the the elder or pastor leading the business meeting would say all of the necessary prerequisites that this person now want, would like has sensed that they've been added to this church. Um, we would now ask you to affirm that. Would all those who believe and such has been added to the church say amen, and, and those who are members of the church would say amen. So it's it's pretty simple. Um, our voting life is not real intricate, so it's not as if, in our context at least, there's this this giant hole that a this particular individual who was baptized as an, as an infant, and now they're a part of our church, but they don't have voting rights. It's not like there's this big gaping hole that they're missing out on. Does, no, that, does that make sense? And particularly as that works itself out practically. Um, In the life of our church, Yeah, yes. you're not going to see any, di- any real difference between, uh, you know, they're going to bring as many meals to the fellowship luncheons as everybody else. Uh, they're going to they're be praying as much in the prayer meeting as everybody else. So it, there is not Absolutely. a a real uh, palpable distinct. They don't have to sit in a different place in the church. Um, Absolutely. 
so so let me let me see if I can repeat this back to you uh, because I think this is a, a very uh, very good point is that essentially you are just being as we would say we are you are being consistent and you're trying to be as consistent as possible while at the same time uh, recognizing fully those who have come to faith and who have professed their faith and so the if you've got a Presbyterian, if you've got two Presbyterians, one um, didn't receive baptism as an infant, uh, they received baptism as an adult believer uh, after they came to faith, and the other received baptism as an infant, uh, they both could become members, um, you would just want to limit the one who only received infant baptism because of your conscientious conviction that infant baptism is not valid. That's that's basically the position, yes. Okay. Because, for example, I I would argue that a a conscientious pedo Baptist, and even someone who's been baptized as an infant and who professes faith and and believes that that their baptism was in fact the sign and seal of God's mercy in Christ I would say that you're not rejecting the ordinance of baptism per se but again according to my principles of baptism that baptism was not a valid baptism does that does that yeah. distinction make sense yeah, oh, absolutely. You're not rejecting baptism as the first thing that a professed believer ought to look to have done, um, or very soon after, early in their, very early in their discipleship. But you're saying what we're differing with is is uh, the validity of the particular baptism that you've got, and you're recognizing a distinction between the two of those. Yes. So as a ch- as a church, for example, you're not like the Quakers. You're not rejecting the ordinance of baptism and saying there is no ordinance of baptism that we need to follow. Wayne Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, for someone who holds to believer's baptism, that is, that you must be baptized as an adult upon profession, admitting to church membership someone who has not been baptized upon profession of faith and telling the person that he or she never has to be baptized as a believer is really giving up one's view on the proper nature of baptism. I don't think I got that. Try that again. Okay, what he's saying is, if if Stefan, you believing baptism and the the proper nature of baptism to be uh, upon profession, uh, by you saying somebody can be a member, he says admitting to church membership someone who has not been baptized upon profession of faith, i.e., somebody baptized as an infant and telling them that they never have to be baptized as a believer is really giving up one's view of the proper nature of baptism. So this is why he's come to his change of position, and yet it seems to me that this statement that he is making uh, is agreeable here, that we are being consistent by saying that somebody who is um, was baptized as an infant cannot become a full member of a... Reformed Baptist Church. And I think that 
the view which I have have laid out doesn't say that they can cumber and that they don't have to be truly baptized. Remember that my at least the, the position which I've articulated here is one that recognizes something uh, that this is a, a rather unique circumstance. Again, we've asked the question, is there a good pedo-baptist church in town? Yeah. So we're, we're asking that question as well. So we're not just simply coming at it from a, a myopic perspective, looking at baptism narrowly and church membership narrowly, but we're looking at it in relation to the question of, of even the universal church. And is there another body that's more appropriate for you to unite with? The is interesting that piece of it. The is interesting that piece of it. Oh, go ahead, Sean. Okay, the interesting thing in that little picture that you give, that you look for another church, uh, knowing you, knowing uh, you know, knowing I think something about Reformed Baptist worship. Uh, it may be that in your area there is another church that holds to the doctrine of pedo-baptism, but that might be a liberal PCUSA church. Yeah, we would not recommend a liberal PCUSA church. Yes. When I say, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking here in terms of a, a more reformed Catholicity. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you would uh, suggest that. I'm simply saying, if I was in your neighborhood... You really, and as a Reformed individual, even though I hold to Pado baptism I would probably want to worship at your church, as opposed right. to some... So it's there are so many other issues that would come into play sure. beyond baptism. Yes. So there would, you know, I, worship, I, uh, the regulative principle, uh, your view mm-hmm. of the gospel would be so much more important in my choosing of a church to my view of whether or not someone has to be baptized as a child or um, as a uh, uh, as an adult believer. Right. Well, we should probably be heading towards wrapping up soon, but um, let me let me ask one more question that I think maybe strikes the balance. Um, Stefan, I'm preaching through Acts chapter 2 right now, and I just did all of Peter's sermon um, last week. On the day of Pentecost, overview, um, and just basically preach the gospel through it. And now I'm going back, and I'm going to teach from 2:23 on, um, uh, you know, you could put whatever label you want on God's sovereignty, providence, um, the decree, you know, whichever one of our confessional labels we want to put on it. But just God's control over everything and his usefulness of even the wicked acts of men to accomplish his purposes. And I'm going to do that in one sermon. And then I'm going to go hit baptism, because it's at the bottom. Is that the similar kind of approach you think you'd do, where we, we preach the gospel, but we also don't feel... We, we don't... Because some contexts would say, it's not even worth, at that time, proclaiming our distinctiveness, what's gained by it. Um. And I get the sense that probably both of us would probably take that opportunity, you to explain why Acts 2.42 doesn't uh, promote a, a, an absolute continuity between the Old Covenant and New Covenant, where I would. Um, is that, in your mind, does that help strike the balance? 
Yeah, to, to some degree, I, th- I think we have to be, remember that we, as ministers of the gospel, are like Paul to preach the whole counsel of God, and the whole counsel of God includes our our understanding of teach about baptism. So, but I do think there is most definitely a priority to the gospel without without minimizing the christian faith to you know a set of fundamentals and excluding things like baptism and church membership and and the means of grace we ought to have an understanding of the primacy of the gospel the centrality of the gospel, which does not exclude things like baptism and push things like baptism completely to the periphery. Mm. So I do think that there is a there is a balance, and I think that the approach, Matt, you're taking to to that text and acts is is a good approach. In that, if you're going to take a whole chunk of scripture that long and preach it, yeah, the the main thing needs to be the main thing the gospel and yet when you come back and you begin to go through it you see again that the gospel is the main thing but there's also these other important principles for the life of the church baptism and you even see church membership here in this context in acts 2 and you see at the end of the day in acts 242 the ordinary means of grace Absolutely. So, those things all come in one package, and that whole package has to be related in its interconnectedness, and yet the gospel needs to be proclaimed. Well, in all of its in all of its glory and in all of its simplicity. Amen. Well Amen. Put. You know, I, I don't think we could end on a better note than that. Uh, saying the gospel, the gospel needs to be proclaimed. And, and that's why, what we're doing. It, that's why we have, even though we differ uh, on some of the practical uh, elements of baptism, we agree that baptism does proclaim the gospel, just as the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel, and most importantly, that the preached word uh, proclaims the gospel. Amen. And so, uh, so we're going we're gonna to leave with that. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would you do this well, again? You so. Would you come back? I would. I would, we would, I would love, to ha- love to have you back. Uh, plenty as of- long as technical tif- difficulties do not <laughs> prevent <laughs> me from such. <laughs> do not impede us, yes. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. And uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure and stop by the blog, leave your comments, leave your questions, and we will uh, we'll get back to you with answers, and we might even make your question the subject of a future podcast. Um, in case you're listening to this and you don't know where you got the message from, you can find us at OrdinaryMeans.com. And uh, I want to thank you again for listening, and may the Lord bless you richly as you pursue Him through His Ordinary Means. 